Hey guys, thanks for checking out another HatchetCast episode here on Spotify, and today we're gonna talk a little bit about this book that is called Fry the Brain, The Art of Urban Sniping. So I'm gonna read a little excerpt from the book, and I think this is a good series that we can kind of take, you know, you know start, you know, chopping up in little pieces and also kind of diving into it and, and the art of urban sniping and what that entails and the psychological effects and how, it, how it's used in combat and stuff like that. So before we get started, make sure you guys go and subscribe to the channel here on Spotify. Only 30% of our listeners are actually subscribed. Also, if you follow us on YouTube, please go subscribe there. It really does help us out. And also pick something up in the store. We do have our 2024 training schedule coming out, so we would love to train with you. And also, um, we will be producing a newsletter where you can actually get up-to-date information about that. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So Fry the Brain, this book's by John West, and I'm just gonna do a real quick reading of an excerpt from the book. The Psychology of Sniping. The psychology of sniping is the psychology of fear. John Falk, a journalist who worked in sniper-infested Sarajevo, described it best. Knowing a sniper is loose is like knowing a cobra is at large somewhere in your house. It makes you paranoid. It freezes you. You stop walking by beds, couches, you open drawers. One is left with the eerie sensation that instant death is always just a moment away. People who live under the fear of snipers lose track of everything in the world, but their fear is a, has a very dark hold that these gunmen have on the region they terrorize. That's why, if captured, snipers are almost always executed on the spot. It is also the reason why most armies disband their sniper units immediately after a war. Snipers are spooky even to the people they serve. There is, absolutely, there is something absolutely terrifying about knowing that a lone skilled gunman is in the area. People placing their crosshairs on your head at any moment. This makes people think. And when people think, they think about saving themselves. Sniper-conscious people take less risks and play it safe. In a war zone where soldiers and police officers are paid to do dangerous work, playing it safe means you no longer do your job. In 1993, British forces working in South Armagh, Northern Ireland, were gripped with sniper fear. During this time, an Irish Republican Army sniper worked the area and in nine separate sniper attacks killed seven British soldiers. Some British units were so afraid of being the next victim, they stopped doing their jobs. In fact, one Royal Scots platoon was disciplined because instead of manning a vehicle checkpoint they, like they were supposed to, they stayed inside the safety of their base and falsified the registrations of the vehicles they were responsible for checking. In this case, the fear of being shot by a sniper overcame military discipline and in effect, ceded the surrounding area to the IRA. A subsequent summary of operations in Northern Ireland written by the British Army in 2006 admitted the effects of IRA snipers. Republican information operations such as the sniper at work signs combined with media hype helped build the myth of the sniper. The attacks affected security force operations and had an impact on morale among some troops and police officers serving in South Armagh. A guerrilla sniper can also have a significant impact on a larger civilian population. A perfect example of this was the murderous sniping spree committed by the DC snipers John Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. During the fall of 2002, Muhammad and Mal Malvo stalked the greater Washington DC region, killing people at random over a geographically large area in order to spread a web of terror. 
No one was safe. Small children were targeted, as, well, as were old men and women. Over the course of several weeks, the DC sniper struck fear in the hearts of tens of thousands of people as entire towns changed their daily habits to avoid the random death lurking the streets. People stocked up on food, children remained at home, and unknown number of tourists stayed away. Persistent rumors that even spread that Muslim gunmen loyal to Al-Qaeda were responsible for the slaughter. Yeah, it's crazy. I actually remember being a kid, and when this was going on, I want to say I was probably like 11 or 12. Um, and I remember that when we got off our bus, because I lived in Virginia at the time, which is where the furthest shooting happened was probably only about an hour or two hours away from me. So uh, I remember when we would get off the bus, we would literally like, sprint like one at a time i think it was no it's one at a time or was it in mass i can't remember but we were sprinting from the bus stop like our bus when we get dropped off at school sprinting to the actual school building um there was like checkpoints and like we were you know didn't go to school for a few days i remember people were like stocking up on groceries and like running to their cars it was insane uh and this is right after 9 11 so like it was, you know, 9-11 was extremely fresh in everybody's mind. Uh, you know, the whole 9-11 uh, and then um, there was that one uh, anthrax was a big deal. And so, like, it was insane. And actually, they were shooting out of the back of their trunk. They had knocked out a keyhole or drilled a hole. And they were using, like, a straight up just an AR, an AR-15. Um, wasn't suppressed. And they were shooting from, in, they would lay down the back passenger seats crawl in the back and shoot out their trunk at people like in you know supermarkets the gas station like schools like they were just shooting everybody like just, just trying to rack up a kill count um but i remember that and it was a huge psychological it was a huge psychological event on the entire community like honestly on like all of virginia maryland all like all of those states it was it was uh pretty insane how much it really um caused the strain on, on people's lives. While one goal of a sniper is to instill fear in the hearts of their enemies in order to paralyze and degrade their every move, a second objective is to manipulate this fear into an overreaction. As John Falk described, snipers are not only feared, they are hated. While fighting on the Eastern Front against the Russians in World War II, German sniper Sepp Alleberger was able to elicit a murderous reaction from the opposing Red Army. I kind of want to actually, what do you guys think? Um, I'd love to know your guys' thoughts. Like you can comment on um, Instagram or send us a DM or comment on YouTube. But um, I'm curious, what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think that, that drone operators, like FPV drone operators, are like the modern version of a sniper? Um, you know, there's a lot of fear around those things. Just people having PTSD symptoms that we've seen from like Ukraine um, over drone operators and drones flying around and killing people. So um, is drone operations going to be the new form of sniper warfare or an additional uh, type of warfare that it has very similar characteristics psychologically that snipers do? Let me know. On April 2nd, 1945, the night he won the Knight's Cross, Sepp showed the kind of sniping that drove the Russians mad for revenge. On that night, Sepp was on a patrol with an infantry squad. The sky was pitch black when a Russian flare suddenly turned the night into day, exposing Sepp and his control. Most of his patrol was quickly wiped out by Russian machine gun fire, leaving Sepp alone to face a Russian infantry company. The Russians then attacked the decimated German patrol in two separate waves. 
However, the assaulting Russians did not realize Sepp was still alive until he opened fire at a range of only eight meters. That is close. Um, striking the startled Red Army soldiers with explosive bullets. Step intentionally aimed at a spot just above the Russians' hips so his bullets exploded inside their stomachs and intestines. After Set mowed down the assaulting infantry with well-aimed fire, he turned his attention to the remaining Russians still in their trenches. He targeted the closest machine gun nest located about 100 meters away. By now, the Russian machine gun team knew exactly where he was located, but the two bodies of Sepp's fallen comrades protected him from the incoming bullets. Despite the enemy fire, Sepp took careful aim and placed an exploding bullet at the machine gun's head and the head of his belt feeder. Every so often, a Russian soldier would expose himself in the trench and Sepp would put a bullet in his brain. In the course of 10 minutes, Sepp killed all 18 of the Russian soldiers who once occupied the trench. There were another 50 dead sprawled out across the open field. With rifle work like this, it was unsurprising that the Russians, already prone to brutality, were in less than a charitable mood when capturing a German sniper. Sepp described an instant when a young German sniper was captured by Russians. This sniper went out to go hunting but never returned. Four days later, a German patrol came across his body. Sepp believes the Russians captured the German sniper with his rifle, which had notches cut in the stock for all the kills he made. The Russians cut the barrel, cut the sniper all over his body, cut off his balls and stuffed them in his mouth, and then stuck the barrel of the rifle up his rectum all the way to the backside. Yikes. Um, after encountering horrible incidents like this, Sepp became a guerrilla sniper hiding among the larger population of regular German soldiers. Sepp stopped cutting notches in the stock of his rifle for every Russian he sent to the grave. He refused to wear the issued sniper badge depicting a raven head and three oak leaves, and if it appeared that capture was imminent, Sepp would ditch his sniper rifle and carry the more innocuous MP40 machine gun. Sepp strived to avoid any outward appearance of being a sniper to become anonymous. This way he might actually live if captured by the Russians. You know, it's funny that in warfare, like in, in the GWAT, we actually had reports, um, you know, for anybody that was an enabler, so like an EOD dude or a JTAC or, um, you know, K9 or something like that. If you had an identifier patch or if like you were like a part of a special forces team and you had your identifiers, like you were targeted. Um, they would specifically develop an SOP to target guys who had those numbered or lettered patches that would give an identifier. Um, it's because that the enemy knew like, hey, this is a important person. They have a very special job and bring a special capability. We need to make sure we take them out first. So that's, it's funny that back in World War II, they were still doing, they were, that's kind of where it was born really of just kind of trying to blend in with the surrounding force that you're with. So that way you don't stand out. In a guerrilla war, the rage and anger and anger a deadly sniper like Sepp Allerberger brings out in the enemy can be used to advance the guerrilla's cause. This is because the security forces being killed one at a time by an invisible shooter are just likely to turn their pent-up frustrations on the civilian population as they are the actual shooter. The United States Field Manual, Combined Armed Operations in Urban Terrain, recognizes this problem in their chapter on sniping. Historically, units that suffered heavy and continual casualties from urban sniper fire were frustrated by their inability to strike back effectively, often having have become enraged. 
Such units have, may overreact and violate the laws of land warfare concerning the treatment of captured snipers. This tendency is magnified if the unit has been under intense stress of urban combat for an extended time. It is vital that commanders and leaders of all levels understand the laws of land warfare and also understand the psychological pressures of urban warfare. It requires strong leadership and great moral strength to prevent soldiers from releasing their anger and frustration on captured snipers or civilians suspected of sniping at them. Since a central part of any guerrilla war is winning the support of the population, government forces that indiscriminately kill, injure, or inconvenience the civilian population in order to get a sniper will only turn the people against them. The same is true for government forces that carelessly destroy the surrounding urban infrastructure and blow up buildings, destroy bridges, and tear up roads. Therefore, a guerrilla sniper that induces fear in their enemy causes an overreaction that results in the mass detention of innocent people and costly damage to the urban landscape, advances their movement by creating the conditions that turn public opinion against the government. Like, I know the, the hearts and minds thing that was in Afghanistan, like, commanders are always like, yeah, we got to focus on hearts and minds and stuff like that. And it was kind of annoying. But at the same time, it, there is a grain of truth in that. Like, if you don't have um, the 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 support of the local populace, like, you're, it's over. Like, because then now you have to fight an entire nation of people, which is eventually essentially what Afghanistan and Iraq ended up turning into. Um, or those Middle East conflicts, they're all turned into that. So, um you know, for the occupying force, it's important for them to not really anger the civilian populace as much as they can. Um, we saw that in, in Ukraine, you know, like the Russians, um, you know, sadly, after they're getting destroyed, do some really bad things um, and vice versa, you know. Um, so you start to see this happen in warfare. Yes, it's inevitable, but you have to try and minimize it as all at all costs because not only obviously for morality issues, but two, it will hurt your campaign um, if you're just killing all the local population. population. An example of power of overreaction took place during the 1870-1871 Franco-Prussian War when France Terroris, a French partisan force, fought against the invading Prussian forces. The Franc Franks Tourists, which grew from French civilian gun clubs, listen to that, it grew from French civilian gun clubs created in the 1860s, were intended to provide the French government with a corps of trained marksmen in case for war. When Prussia invaded France in 1870, the Frank Tourists, fighting in civilian garb, fought a guerrilla war against the Prussian troops, relying heavily on guerrilla sniper tactics to pick off unsuspecting Prussian soldiers and to tie down a large number of the invaders. The French guerrillas were such feared marksmen that the Spanish and Portuguese words for sharpshooter in Spanish and in, and in Portuguese were Frank Turidor, which is essentially their name. Um, derived from the Frank Tourier, in, uh, in response, the Prussian army considered the Frank Tourier's dishonorable assassins and executed all captured snipers and other guerrillas on the spot. The Prussians argued that the Frank Tourier's, by fighting in civilian clothes, violated the norms of warfare and could be killed just like one would kill a spy. But the invading Prussians did more than just kill ca captured Frank Tourier's. They also employed widespread reprisals against entire villages and towns suspected of harboring the guerrillas. These reprisals included mass detentions, pillaging, and burning of private residences, bred a long-lasting hatred between the French people and the Prussians. I mean, you start to see this. You've seen it in, um, you know, in the movie Patriot. Remember, like 
the the ghost and uh, the swamp fox, you know, like that in the Revolutionary War and the Patriot, that happened because he was they burned the local population's houses and destroyed stuff and killed their family and, and they could it ended up being more of a pain in the end for them. Um, and you saw this also in um you know where they're burning and and pillaging all these places in the Vietnam War. So like the Viet Cong would go in and now it was both sides. Like the VC would also do that to the local population and it just happened the local population were more terrified of the Viet Cong. But you know um, seeing those mass murders by troops happen on both sides, you know, um, was because the people who were stuck in the middle were suffering the punishments. And we're seeing this now, today, especially like in the Middle East, in Gaza, um, we're seeing where the innocent people who are stuck in the middle are the ones that get the worst of it. Um, the Prussian military command, seriously frustrated by Frank Tears during the war believed only though through even stricter population control measures and mass punishment could the problem be solved. Consequently, when World War I arrived with a terrible thunder in 1914, the invading German army who found themselves plagued once again with accurately shooting Frank Tourers reverted to harsh pacification me measures against the Belgian and French civilian populations. As before, these measures only served to alienate the Belgian and French people, turning them ever more re resolutely against the German invader. The byproduct of the escalating Frank Turer's German pacification war was an increasingly entrenched hatred for the German invaders who were derisive derisively called the botches or the Hun after the barbaric conquerors from the east. Due in part to this hatred generated from the German mistreatment of French civilians during the Great War, France and the other victorious nations enacted their own revenge on the German people with the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. The German army may have subjected large swaths of Western Europe to their repressive counter-guerrilla measures during the Great War, but a vengeful France imposed an even harsher post-war sentence on the entire German nation, which included a humiliating demilitarization of the fatherland, allied control of Germany's vital and industrial rural area and absolutely crippling war reparation repayments. These measures shattered the German state's self-esteem, destroyed the German economy, and created a chaotic environment that led to a low-grade civil war. Speaking of civil war, you also got to think about, you know, in civil conflicts, the Geneva Conventions and the human rights treaties and all these other things, they go out the window. Um, when it's a nation fighting another nation that is accepting of those those war agreements that's when you start to see like oh taking prisoners and stuff like that but if it's a civil conflict man like you're done like there is going to be there is just no mercy by either side because there's no treaty like it's it's there's no bars held back it's 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 free for all out of this toxic bubbling cauldron of fear hate and loathing came a most unlikely savior adolf hitler through the Fuhrer, the resuscitated German people unflinchingly funneled their two decades of humiliation, disgrace, and misery. With a vengeance, the Nazi phoenix righted past wrongs, steamrolling sacrificial Poland in 1930, crushing hated France under the steel tread of German panzers in the summer of 1940. So you got to think about, like, you know, that is another reason why, like, training and being a trained citizen is a perfect deterrent towards war because if you have where 
you know, your training and there's a, a lot of people like, you know, the Japanese emperor or the general said back in World War II, he's like, there's going to be a gun behind every blade of grass. But now if we're looking at our culture today, there's a lot more people getting into guns and a lot more people in the gun industry getting into training, which is great. Um, it's a great deterrent because it's like, who's going to own a mess with a trained force? Nobody does because it's not worth the squeeze. It's, it would be too costly of a, of a conquest. So training is a deterrent. Uh, and so making sure that you're prepared and that your training is so important. Um, but let's look at, it says here, amplifying fear and amplifying reaction. A sniper's effectiveness is multiplied tenfold when their enemy thinks that they are a greater threat than they actually are. For example, we read earlier in this chapter about the British platoon in Northern Ireland that stopped doing their jobs because of sniper fear. Most likely, the platoon had no specific information that an IRA sniper team was singling them out. However, because several other soldiers over the course of several months were hit, fear of attack was enough for them to give up carrying their duties, carrying out their duties. The IRA's campaign of, of sniper intimidation was aided by it immensely by a publicity campaign involving road signs showing the silhouette of a sniper in the words sniper at work painted below. The sniper at work signs greeted British soldiers as they went on foot patrols and drove their vehicles in IRA dominated areas in Northern Ireland. These signs, some of which were booby trapped to prevent their removal, reminded the British soldiers that they were entering IRA sniper country. In reality, relatively few British soldiers were killed by the IRA snipers. However, the British thought the th threat was greater than, th and this was enough to put an enormous drag on all their operations, like a giant lead anchor, allowing the IRA a much greater freedom of movement than they deserved. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to see that how much the psychological impact um, you know, has played a role in, in modern conflict. And what I'm actually going to read next is actually um, somewhat modern. It's in 2003. Uh, this is in the war in Iraq. I actually remember hearing about this. Um, and um, I think it was, his name was Juba. Yeah, Juba. But uh, there is a sniper in Iraq. And I'm going to read about him. But he did a, I mean, the, that's kind of like when the terrorist video campaign and like producing high quality content was like a big deal and it still is and it started from there uh it started from this type of incident the uh i remember in in afghanistan there was actually a chechen sniper team and uh it was a female and a and a couple of dudes and the chechen female was the sniper and she was running a dragonov which is a 762 by 54r um, big round and um, the two dudes would have PKM so what they would do is they would maneuver to a like guard tower on a fob and they would start engaging the tower with the uh, PKMs and while the machine gunners on the tower were engaging back the sniper or the female she would maneuver close and get within good range of the like you know, usually with about 100 or 150 meters away from the guard tower and make a shot and usually, I mean, she's, she racked up quite a kill count. Uh, from what I remember, she ended up getting a bomb dropped on her. They ended up calling an airstrike on her, but um, not before she was able to do some damage and psychologically it had an effect. So here we go, back to the book. Marketing the Modern Sniper. 
Over the course of many decades and wars, no military and certainly no guerrilla movement equaled the Russian exploitation of sniping until the 2003 war in Iraq. While most Iraqi insurgent snipers were not exceptionally talented shooters, not one had displayed the prowess of Vasily Zaitsev or Sepp Allerberger, the Iraqi resistance did understand the psychology of sniping. In Iraq, the insurgents gave a name and an identity to their guerrilla sniper campaign, creating a single super sniper they called Juba. So for all my GWAT vets, you guys remember this story, um, but if you've never heard of this story, it's pretty interesting. The insurgents cleverly attributed a variety of skillful sniper attacks to the single sniper entity who seemed to be everywhere. Importantly, the key to the insurgents' marketing success was their procedures for filming and distributing their sniper attacks to an international audience. The Iraq snipers got their film coverage by assigning a cameraman to record the sniper's attack. Most often, the shooter and the cameraman were co-located side by side. When the sniper made their shot from the concealed position, the cameraman filmed from an angle most in line with the shooter. The cameraman was so close to the shooter that at times it looked like the camera was attached to the rifle. On occasion, the snipers even filmed the shootings through the scope of their rifle. The end result was a you-are-there perspective of the shooting. Getting good sniper footage was just one step in the insurgents' marketing process. The next step was getting this film into a format the hungry consumer could devour. This was easy since the sniper attacks were filmed on digital cameras. After the cameramen filmed the attack and made their getaway, they went to a secure location like a safe house and hooked their camera up to a computer using basic commercially available software they downloaded edited, and burned their footage onto compact discs, CDs. For all you young guys out there, back in the day, you could burn CDs, and like you could actually like put data on CDs. Like, you know, you can make your own like music list, playlist, and it was on a CD, you get like 13 songs on there, you get it from LimeWire, and it was like cool, like how I'll make, make you a custom CD, like, um, Probably there was no iPod, like iPods were just hadn't even come out yet. Like, um, and we'd never heard we had MP3 players were like a huge deal back in the day. It was like, holy crap, this thing has 25 songs on it. Um, but now it's all you know, it's all way more advanced. But yeah, back then you would burn things to CDs. Once the insurgents burned a couple hundred CDs, they were ready for distribution. One way to get them into the hand to the Iraqi people was to simply stand on street corners and hand them out or the CDs were distributed to the vast, thriving, underground CD network in Iraq that sold CDs to the discriminating customers on everything from fiery IED attacks to gruesome beheadings. The most important venue for insurgent sniper videos was the internet. The Iraqi insurgency was a media savvy enough to develop its own websites that promoted the insurgency and glorified their attacks on the government and American occupation forces. If the average Iraqi citizen was unwilling to risk being caught in possession of insurgent propaganda, which may get them a painful beating by the police or even jail time, it was safer just to log onto a guerrilla website and see the video online. If the consumer watched the video in the comfort of their own home, they could always delete the web history and internet cookies after getting their insurgency fix. If they did not want to risk having in incriminating electrons hidden away somewhere in the electronic guts of their computers, they can go to an internet cafe and log on there. Um, so when I lived overseas for a little while, there in, in, in America, we don't really have these, but in like Europe or Asia, 
um, they have internet cafes. So it's literally like a cafe, it has a buttload of inter uh, computers in there. And sometimes they have like, you can like sit down and order ramen or something like that. Um, but you could play like video games, you could surf the web, you could watch YouTube, but you paid for like an hour at a time. And like I'd go there with my friends, we'd play like StarCraft or Age of Empires and like Counter-Strike and like battle it out between each other and we just all meet up and hang out there. I've literally wasted tons of hours in an internet cafe before. No one, all right. Uh, in Iraq, watching insurgent propaganda was like watching porn. No one would publicly condone it. It was officially outlawed by the government, but everyone did it and the government could not stop it. Because the insurgent placed their sniper footage on internet service providers in neutral countries like Syria and Jordan, the Iraqi and US governments were unable to control it or shut it down. Even if an ISP was shut down, it was temporary, temporary annoyance at best as another ISP was just a few clicks away and an anonymous credit card away from being up and running. With the internet's global reach, insurgent sniper propaganda found itself readily available across the world and in Americans' own living rooms. You just had to log on to YouTube or Ogreish to see this footage. For the guys who remember, back before YouTube was bought by Google, like you could put anything on YouTube. Um, and also Ogreish or LiveLeak, those were two like big like you want to see nasty stuff where it's like gore and gruesome things that was never censored. Um, you know, it was on those sites. Like they even had like snuff films and it was, it was bad. Like in the early stages of the internet, like all that stuff was just available. Like, um, and so, yeah. Um, YouTube is a particularly potent media tool because 100 million people a day log onto the site and one Iraqi insurgent sniper video which offered the interested viewer tips on how to shoot American soldiers received 30,000 hits before it was taken down. Today, any in the world, anyone in the world can do a Google or dogpile search for propaganda plus sniper and find what they're looking for. Another arrow in the Iraqi insurgents media quiver was international television. Just think of the hundreds of millions of people who, a day who watch the world's major news channels like American Cable News Network, CNN, uh, BBC, blah, blah, blah. Like, not so much anymore. You know, a lot of mainstream media is, yeah, is straight trash, like just propaganda lying to you. Um, but, you know, back then it was a big deal. Uh, and they actually had a tiny resemblance of journalism. But, anyways, that's neither here nor there. Um, so... Yeah, in 2007, BBC was rated as the single largest media organization on the planet. Germany's De Spiegel operated in the shadows of media giants like CNN and the BBC. But it was Germany's number one magazine with millions of readers and had its own internet site. I do remember Der Spiegel back in the day. Although it was created in 1996 also, Al Jazeera had reached an estimated 50 million Arab homes and 80 million English-speaking homes by 2007. It's important to understand the reach and influence the videos of the Iraqi insurgent sniper attacks against Iraq. Or it is important to understand the reach and influence of these media giants because each one of them aired stories and/or videos of the Iraqi insurgent sniper attacks against the Iraqi government and American forces. On October 18, 2006, CNN Anderson Cooper 360 aired a five-minute piece about Iraqi insurgent sniping, including a sniper video produced by the Islamic Army in Iraq. While the show had a huge audience, even more attention was brought to the sniper piece when the American public debated if CNN should have showed the insurgent sniper's video or not. In fact, the controversy brought more coverage to the insurgent sniper's operation than if there was no controversy at all. 
On their website, CNN explained why they showed the sniper footage. They admitted that there could be some benefits to the insurgents by airing the sniper piece and that some viewers would be upset by the graphic footage. However, CNN argued that the piece was newsworthy and important to show because of the rising casualties in Iraq, many of which were caused by snipers. Out of respect to the soldiers actually targeted in the film, CNN explained they faded the screen to black before actually showing the impact of the sniper's round. Some readers expressed outrage at CNN airing the sniper's videos, while others praised CNN for showing the American people the unvarnished truth. During the same period as the CNN piece, Der Spiegel's TV network aired a special on the Iraqi, and the Iraqi insurgent snipers that included Juba sniper footage. An interview with an American soldier wounded in that sniper attack and then an insurgent sniper showing off his sniper equipment and explaining some of their new methods. For the German media giant, this was just another informational piece on the guerrilla war in Iraq that revealed some of the insurgents' latest tactics. Because Germany did not have any soldiers in Iraq getting shot by urban guerrilla snipers, there was no outcry from the German public and no resulting swirl of controversy. In October 2006, Al Jazeera ran a similar video showing insurgent snipers shooting U.S. soldiers. This piece included an interview with the commander of an insurgent sniper brigade who explained the impact of their sniping on the enemy. From the insurgents' perspective, it was important to get their footage on a mainstream Arab news network in order to reach millions of Arabs living adjacent to Iraq and Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the Middle East for that matter. Videos like this showed the insurgent success against the occupiers, inspired new volunteers to come and fight in Iraq, and reassured existing supporters around the world that their moral and monetary backing was a good investment. And that's something you're going to see a lot more too. Like this is, they use a lot of those types of videos for recruiting, especially when there's an ideological drive where there is an ideology that they're defending that they can have zeal for. Like it's really hard to quash, almost impossible to destroy an idea. The only real time that it's really been destroyed, like pretty much effectively destroyed was like you know, Nazis and stuff back in World War II. Um, so it is significant to note that the insurgent film airing on the October 2006 Al Jazeera piece was an example of high quality media work. In the beginning of the guerrilla war in 2003 and 2004, the insurgents media efforts were often poor quality with grainy videos and pictures pasted together haphazardly, obviously made by amateurs. But by the time the sniper video in 2006, the insurgents media process had improved drastically as they now employed professional media experts to create, edit, and exploit and distribute slick, well-packaged sniper propaganda worldwide. The Iraqi insurgents themselves showed themselves to be a learning, adaptive organization that valued the art of sniping. They also understood the impact of their attacks and would be amplified exponentially if they put them in the hands of the world's media giants. Once Juba became a hero to the insurgency and other independent supporters of the resistance capitalized on his popularity to spread the myth of Juba even further. A Brazilian named Carlos made a comic book about Juba where the main character does battle with arrogant American forces and guns them down with a sniper rifle. While most writers tried protecting their works, er, Carlos posted his Juba comic book on various websites, encouraging his readers to copy, download, distribute his Juba com comic book as widely as possible. So, guys, uh, that's just a small snippet. We'll keep breaking down this book, Fry the Brain, but it is more... It is just so interesting the psychological effects that different roles in combat and warfare can play. Uh, obviously, guerrilla warfare and urban sniping um, and urban warfare itself. Urban warfare is already a highly stressful type of situation, one of the hardest types of warfare that, that it exists. 
And then imagine sniping in that type of warfare makes it even more difficult and more um, treacherous. You gotta think a lot of these snipers have the, what you know taking those shots and 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 the psychological effect that they have on other fighters and other combatants. That residual effect lasts even after the war. I mean, there's there's a lot of people who suffer with PTSD from experience caused by snipers, um, and so that residual effect has you know made a lasting impact. Where people you know vets are committing suicide like crazy these days because of PTSD issues. So um, you were seeing that in in combat, the residual effects of that to include things like sniping has left a huge scar on people's lives. So it is an extremely effective form. Uh, and I feel like that drone operators are gonna be an equivalent of that, the next modern sniper, but utilizing drones. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Anyways, guys, it's more incentive to go out and train, invest in yourself. We do teach a scope carbine class where we stretch out 5.56 and we make it uh, go the distance and show you that it is a very capable uh, weapon system that if a well-trained individual can run it, you have quite an effect that you can provide. So. Make sure you guys go sign up for the training schedule. It does help us out. We love training with you guys. Also, make sure you guys spend time with your family and your loved ones. You're not promised tomorrow. You only have today guaranteed. So make sure you take the time to, to cherish the loved ones, cherish the moments, and time with your family and friends. So make sure you're the asset and not the liability. And I'll see you on the next one.